Hello and welcome. I'm Alexander. I'm Simon. And I'm Haney. We're Native in Tech, covering the latest from the IT industry, with a specific focus on Microsoft and how to get actual value from technology. This is episode 221, recorded on April 11th, 2023. You will be able to find this and our previous episodes on nativeintech.com, iTunes, Spotify, and on most podcasting platforms. We're going to do something slightly different today because we've had a chat, we've had a think, it, it happens, and we've decided to switch things around a bit. We're going to, instead of doing one episode every two weeks, we're going to split the episode into one part that is the news, which will be airing uh, every two weeks, and one part that is the uh, the focus segment, which in turn will uh, air the, the other uh, weeks, so to speak. This is going to give us a weekly cadence, and we really hope and think this will be a, an improvement. We're also going to change the length of the episodes to roughly 30 to 35 minutes, meaning that we can actually get more content in, uh, and better content, hopefully, uh, but still uh, having a fairly short and sweet episode format. So here we go. This is the first one. And uh, Simon, what do you have for us? And today we'll start with one of the most horrific products that's still in the Microsoft portfolio, <laughs> but it has gotten slightly better. And and I must say, and we know that I'm talking about Windows 365, of course. No, oh, I thought it was Windows 11. <laughs> well, it has a purpose. Which one does? Uh, to keep endpoint managers happy. No, 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 no. no. Which one no. does have a... a, a ah, a, a, Windows 11. Ah, Windows okay. 11. Yeah. So, but, but I... To be fair, I'm working on a session that I will be deliver in Norway in a couple of months on Windows 365, and that has actually opened my mind. So if you just pay a little, little more, it will actually be usable. So I've been using Windows 365 for a while now as my primary community uh, laptop. Uh, not using that currently, but that would be fun. Moving on to myself. Uh, we have a bunch of new news for Windows 365 that were announced uh, last, just before Easter, I think. Uh, one of them being Windows 365 for frontline workers. So as you might know, Windows 365 is a per month cost for a virtual machine running in Azure. Is that what uh, used to be called uh, Azure, Azure Virtual Desktop? No, <sighs> no. No, 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 no. Azure Virtual Desktop is the good thing. Separate product. S exactly. That's the rebellion. And Windows 365 are basically like one of the planets that the Imperial forces took over and then blasted to pieces. I might be exaggerating just a bit now, but uh, we'll move on. So Azure Virtual Desktop, that's when you want full flexibility, all the power, that's a platform as a service more than a software as a service, which you can almost say that Windows 365 is. So Windows 365 is a Windows 10 or Windows 11 cloud PC running in Azure, managed by Microsoft Intune. And up until now, it's been one person, one VM. And if you compare that to multi-session Azure Virtual Desktop, that can be one VM 60 persons, if you so desire, and have the performance. But a lot of organizations would have loved to use Windows 365 for shift workers, as an example. 
So now you're able to license the same Windows 365 technology, but where you're allowed to have three users that can use the same machine, not simultaneously, but eight hours at a time. So you sign in in the morning, you do your eight or nine hours of work. Then the next person takes over the same VM, signs in, and so it goes. Which means that you can get a little more people into the same amount of VM to a, a relatively good cost. But it's mainly a licensing question and also how you assign the devices and licenses. But I do think it's it's a... Um, one of the very few things I see Windows 365 being very useful for are that, like, using one app, very low requirements on performance. Uh, and, and I think this could be a something that really will help some organizations, and it will definitely be the right thing for some organizations, even though I do still see that AVD provides more flexibility and in some instances a lower cost and certainly better performance. But uh, I will be running with one of the former PMs on uh, for Windows 365 next week in, in Seattle, so we'll, we'll see what we can figure out there. One of the other things that have been released, and, and I'm really curious on um, what your thoughts is on this. Windows 365, the app for Windows 365, which you connect to your cloud PC from, is now getting released for LG smart TVs. So by having a currently model year 2023 LG Smart TV, any consumer product, you, by connecting a keyboard and mouse to the TV, can use that for your cloud PC. Which I was very surprised <laughs> to hear about. What's, what's your thoughts on that? Uh, could I just ask, because I feel dense... Mm -hmm. Again, why would you use Windows 365 over uh, Azure Virtual Desktop? Great question. Is is it only because essentially cost? It's a known cost because it's a fixed cost per ah. user per month for a certain performance of that cloud PC. You can use it 24-7 for a complete month for a fixed cost. It might not be the lowest cost but it's a known cost. That's one of the things which a lot of organizations, which I understand, evaluates. The other thing is that it's very, very easy to maintain. So it's basically any, like any Windows 11 machine, you use it with Microsoft Intune, you can do most of the things you can with a physical PC. Uh, and when you need it, you can actually do some other neat things like reinstating a previous snapshot or, or shadowing it or, or whatever you would like to do or reprovisioning reprovision it on the fly. So it's a perfect way for users that haven't been using virtualization previously to get to know the technology and how that would work and try it. Like, does it really work? Can I use a, a cloud PC? And surprisingly, many will find that super useful and intuitive and actually workable in a lot of instances. To, to, um, to answer your question, what do I think about putting that one into an, a TV? I think that might be a bit of an iPad moment mm. because 
At least I was there. Maybe Simon was not there when the first iPad was released. <laughs> I were. Ah, just checking. Everybody went, yeah, that's awesome. But what the hell should we use it for? And then came this enormous iPad ec- ecosystem. And now it's ubiquitous, right? I'm, I'm thinking that this might actually be the same because when you start to think of it, it opens up some pretty interesting ideas. It's suddenly you buy a TV and for a small amount of money, you can also get a PC, a pretty powerful PC at that. Yeah. And it's already there. And you don't need to have a bulky thing that makes noise. So no, I think it could be really creating a niche more than filling a niche. I'm actually quite surprised. And, and sorry, I will I will let Haney in soon. Uh, but I'm, I'm actually quite surprised. But first, first, I was going to say you were surprisingly positive today, Alexander. I'm not used to that. Have you eaten something? <laughs> And then you might actually be on to something. Which is something that surprised you even more, correct? Yeah. Probably. And, and also, might, have a, might I have uh, underestimated the power of the cloud PC? We will see. Well, what's, what's your thoughts, Haney, on, on this cloud PC thingy and on LGs? Yeah, I, I have attempted to understand Azure Virtual Desktop in the past mm-hmm. and have actually done some things with it that work. So I can see the appeal. <laughs> it, it did actually work. I, know. Uh, <laughs> I can see the appeal of something that is easier to manage and, you know, set up and things like that. Uh, so if the product can develop to a state where it's actually functions in a way that is needed, then then I can definitely see a place for that in the options. But any time we have this more package solution, it also means that there's less freedom on what you can do with it. So mm-hmm. there's probably be, I don't think it's going to like take Azure Virtual Desktop out or anything like that, at least in the near future. But But it's interesting to see where it goes. And yeah, I think that TV use case is interesting. I I already know people who don't have PCs and have like a little computer attached to their Mm. TV and Mm. essentially run it there. So I can kind of see this as a different kind of option for users who like to work in that way. I don't know if it's so much directed towards organizations, though, rather than individual users. So... Interesting. Yeah, and and that's a good point that I do think that cloud PC will have the biggest uh, opportunity within the consumer space rather than the organizational space. One last thing, um, do you remember this? This is and this is horrible podcasting. Of course, I'm showing the camera a HP X3 Windows Phone. It's still not started yet. I just unboxed it. You unboxed a Windows Phone. Yeah. Finally, I got rid of the box, so now it's unboxed. I have everything here, so I will set it up and start to use it again. Just need to find a SIM card. Um, But they are also making Windows 365 available on Android in a mode that's almost identical to Continuum on Windows Phone. Basically, if you run your Windows 365 a cloud PC on an Android device and connect that to a bigger screen, it will understand that, oh, this is no longer a mobile device, it's now a PC. It's just Ooh. six or seven years after Windows Phone, but there we are. Um, Samsung DeX has, of course, done this all along. 
but um, innovation, you know. On to the next one. We have a new technical preview for Config Manager, and um, let's just say that they haven't really ramped up the pace on new features. We have dark mode extended to one wizard and support for SQL Server 2022. Uh, and the known issue, that's it. So some might ask, <laughs> is it time to replace Config Manager with Intune? And my response is the same as always. Config Manager will be there for a long time ahead. And it's a very fully featured product. So uh, don't judge the Config Manager releases by the dark theme that comes with it. For one wizard. <laughs> For one wizard. Ah, is, is the other wizards expected to get dark mode in the future? <laughs> I would say that most of the wizards already have dark mode, uh, but not this particular one. Does that mean that the... they are dark wizards? <laughs> yeah, why I are we so. talking about wizards? <laughs> uh, and we have a bunch of news within Microsoft Intune, which <laughs> has new features that are actually worth something. Dark mode? Uh, and and has nothing to do with SQL Server. Uh, but dark mode? Yeah, we have dark mode, but I'm, okay. you know, I'm a person that doesn't like dark mode. I don't run dark mode on anything. We have new abilities to install required apps during pre-provisioning, which is great. You can prepare the device before it reaches the user, even though it's uh, assigned to the user. And we are able to add a Google account to Android Enterprise personally owned devices with a work profile. And that is the actual name of the profile. Short and sweet. Uh, but it, it really gives us some other opportunities. Yes, Alexander. Um, you just said something pretty interesting. Ability to mm -hmm. add software before the, the device gets to, to the grubby hands of the user. Mm -hmm. How do you... How do you do that? Does does that mean that you're 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 queuing updates and, and, and installs that's gonna happen as soon as they open the lid? Or what does it mean? So imagine autopilot, mm -hmm. Windows autopilot. You uh the, the Microsoft service knows that this particular device with a certain hardware ID will belong to a certain user. Once that device boots and gets network connectivity it will show you a screen if you press a certain key on the keyboard a number of times. There you can select what was formerly known as white glove, now called pre-provisioning. Ah. And if you click that, without signing in, Intune will start to download content. That's how it previously worked. But now it can also install that software before the user signs in for the first time. Once pre-provisioning is done, the technician that has the device can just shut it down, put it back in the box, send it to the user, and when they sign in, the experience will be everything is there instantly. So, so it's definitely a, a really nice improvement um, and something that I do think will actually change the way and to the extent a lot of organizations are using pre-provisioning. Yeah, this sounds like the the way that we were promised it would work sort of kind of <laughs> yes. 10 years and, ago <laughs> exactly and then we got a crappy implementation <laughs> and crappy implementation is actually a very good segue we are really bashing microsoft today i feel well yes but not not without them them really deserving it <laughs> yeah no definitely i mean they they definitely had to, to lie in the bed they made so um 
I've mentioned the ta tabla model definition language, or Tyndall, as as uh, Matthias Tierbach um, pronounces it. And the announcement was made at SQL Bits, but now the actual news item has been uh, put out. The, the the TMDL preview is is out there. And what I mean with with uh, Microsoft has to lie in the bed they made. Well, uh, the uh, the Timsol, um, the other formats. The, the JSON, or let me rephrase that, the absolutely horrible JSON format that is underneath the, the model uh, as it is today. Um, yeah, no, it's it's a mess. Uh, that I, sounds I really... like ARM templates. <laughs> well, yes. Mm. No, you, you're, you're absolutely right. They, it served its purpose, but because of... Ah. Bicep. I, no, and I, I, I don't mean this as a negative thing. Because of short-sightedness, it did not really serve the larger purpose because I don't think anybody had the idea that, that what would happen with, with ARM templates would well require something like BICEP. So BICEP is a bit of a uh, solution to a problem that should never have been. And it is, in my view, the same with Timdall. Uh, if the, the implementation had been done correctly if if you will this would not have been an issue but it was and now we have a, a preview of a proposed solution that is elegant and exceedingly powerful so i'm, I'm super super excited to see where this is going to go it's very early days um, and what is timdall well it's it's a human readable format uh, not unlike yaml yet another markup language thingy so um, instead of having everything in just one file, every um, metadata object has its own file. There are minimal delimiters. Um, it, it works on indentation. Uh, indentation. Sorry about that. And in in every way, it is so much easier to to manipulate than uh, than Timsel, the the JSON uh, stuff. So super super excited. There will be stuff coming out uh, as it stands right now you are limited to using a preview version of PBI tools that Matthias Thielbach uh, has made, but there will be a Visual Studio code extension that is going to uh, give you intuitive TMDL or Timdall editing experience uh, coming down the line. And also I've, I've read that um, um, there will be other third-party tools uh, that's going to support this uh, this as well. And again, this this opens up so many exciting opportunities uh, that we previously either A, couldn't do, or B, had to use an, an inordinate amount of duct tape and swear words to get to work. Yeah, because that, that was my question. Is this just a simpler way of doing the same things? Or will it enable you to do new things? I'm going to say yes. To that question <laughs> because yes it is a simpler way of doing things because suddenly you can definitely read the the darn thing as a human you you're not going to get lost in in a horrible uh, horribly complex json but as it is human readable and consistent it will also open up a lot of other opportunities that you probably could do with this current um, Timsel format, but it is a pain in the posterior like you would not believe. So 
the simplicity will enable uh, functionality, if, if that makes sense. And, and then we can go on and talk about other, like, uh, duct tape thing is deploying pipelines is a really, really powerful feature of, of Power BI. And I'd argue that it's an essential part of an enterprise environment. So what does deployment pipelines do? Well, it's essentially DevOpsifying Power BI, right? So you have a, a pipeline, you can push stuff from, from um, I, was, I, I was about to say from production to dev, but no, you <laughs> probably should do it the other way around. So you have um, doing things in, in dev, and when you're happy with that, you push it to, um, to a review, and when you're happy with that, you push it to, to production. There has not been a simple way to figure out what has really changed before you actually do deploy it. It's going to tell you what it changed, but it's kind of late. Uh, but now uh, there is a, a feature that gives you um, essentially a list of uh, changes. Now, that's the good part. The not so great part is in what format do you think you're going to get this information? JSON. <laughs> JSON. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so... I'm I'm assuming and hoping and and guessing that this is something that uh, will turn into Tyndall uh, just as soon as they can have someone to to code it up, because that's a that's a no brainer. There's also a, a a feature that came out with this that's more of an enhancement. If you have a lot of stuff you want to deploy, unfortunately something breaks previously. Everything broke when you tried to, to deploy it. Say, for instance, that you have a, a three data sets, A, B, and C, and data set A has two reports based off it. And if the first data set failed the, the deployment, previously everything would just go, nah, broken, boring. Now you can take the data set A out, including the dependent objects. So report one and report two won't be deployed, but data set B and C will. That's kind of neat. So continue deployment in case one or more items fail is the uh, the checkbox that gives you this uh, this magic. So question to Haney actually is is this Azure DevOps in the background or, or are there any if you have like a cloud center of excellence are there will will this pipeline thingy be managed by them as well or is that still the the data wizards? Uh, the deployment. Pipelines are very much within Power BI, and that coming from the DevOps background is kind of the <laughs> thing that gets me a little like, ay, 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 uh, because it's to me, it's not manageable in a large scale at the moment in the sense as we think about like application projects where you mm -hmm. deploy multiple applications, you want to have a dashboard where you can see where is everything deployed, etc. You do not have that same kind of capabilities in the deployment pipelines yet. And like for me personally, I would rather want to see this evolve into tooling within Azure DevOps rather than a separate uh, product within Power or like capability within Power BI. My per personal opinion, just but I kind of like there's enough variety in the tooling within the CI/CD landscape that it just like makes things complicated because it is quite a different kind of logic 
that it works with. They, they essentially had a couple of ways of doing this. First is my, my very evil um, personal opinion is that deployment pipelines is the result of a Power BI guy being at a party talking to a DevOps guy and listening to him <laughs> Could be. explaining what DevOps is. And then the Power BI guy went back home and implemented uh, what he heard. Um, so either you could have used just adding APIs that connect to Azure DevOps. That, in my view, and I think that's that's something that you'd agree on, Haney, that would have been the right way of doing it. Why bolt on yet another set of tooling, which um, deployment pipelines essentially is, especially as the file format is such a hot mess. So the things that deployment pipelines does underneath the covers, it's it's scary. It smells bad. I'm just amazed they, they make it work most of the time. Uh, so Timdall is going to, again, enable so much more. And hopefully the deployment pipelines will kind of quietly exit stage right and we can do things the right way with, with Azure DevOps. And then we have a final uh, news item. And I was I was debating with myself to, to put this in, but I, I really... I really enjoyed this one because this is, um, it's called Essential Tips for Cleaning Data with Spark. And this comes from the um, the Azure Synapse blog. And the thing is, there, there are actually two different blog posts on that blog that I, I think I, I want to mention. And one of them is, is this. Another is a walkthrough of a an architecture for healthcare. And both of them are essentially examples of how you can do things. And there are so many different ways of learning things. Either you can just take out the big fat book and read cover to cover, or you can do the do it the way I do. I jump in, try to break it, and that is surprisingly simple. Uh, I'll say that. And then you try to figure out how to put the whole thing back together. That's why I personally love examples because I can steal examples and then I incorporate those into my, my insight and that's that's how I'm, I'm learning. So seeing Microsoft put out these kinds of um, example uh, blog posts, that made me super, super happy. So definitely check check that out. And there are a lot of ways to of, of doing everything with Spark. I mean, it's it's a super powerful tool. And there is no right way of doing something. That's why you see multiple examples of doing exactly the same thing in, in Spark, especially as this is something that still is kind of un, unknown for a lot of, of database people. Um, There's so many people that still think that you do ETL stuff either in SQL, which is a great idea, don't get me wrong, or you use tooling like um, pipelines or, or Azure Data Factory. But there is a, another option, and that is the, the Spark tool, Spark pool, which is exceedingly powerful. So definitely go check that out. And, and will this potentially improve performance or, or why should you clean? Why should you clean? Period. Well, oh, oh God, that's, <laughs> that's a different that's question. A different question, and, and how long do we have? But uh, but it's a great Not question. Long. Why why should you use um, uh, Spark over or SQL? The short answer is, of course, it depends. the The slightly longer answer is 
Uh, let me do a um, a full um, in-depth discussion on that on one of our, mm-hmm. our uh, other segments going forward. But it depending on your your previous skill set, depending on the specific uh, challenge that you're facing, depending on what formats you're working with, um, you have a number of options, and Spark is one of the options. But how how has it been for you, Simon, in your new position? Because I saw that Chaos Studio has come into public preview in Sweden Central. Simon yeah. got hired. Exactly. <laughs> I do think like the public preview states that this is my trial period. So if I, I don't create enough chaos in my first six months, I'm fired. Uh, and probably yeah. end up in, in the basement of an Amazon data center instead. <laughs> to... Other forms of preventing chaos, I guess, is that <laughs> nice. for Azure, there is a new SKU in Azure DDoS. So uh, this is one of the services where you've looked at the price because this has in the past, this has been given you as a service where you enable this to your entire network at once, your entire virtual network. And... Sometimes in the past, I've had this situation with a colleague where they've been like, oh, the price is two and a half euros or something like that. And then you realize the comma is not a decimal point. It is the (laughs) thousand point. So this hasn't been the cheapest service to start using if you're like, well, I need to secure one public IP address, for example, or one public endpoint. So there is now, I think, a much awaited skew that hasn't been introduced, that is available for users now, that is actually to just protect one public IP resource at a time. And yeah, it's still not the cheapest of services. It's still, uh, I looked at the price for West Europe, which is 184 uh, euros per month. So that is the scale. But if you are just protecting one IP address or two, it will be much less than paying 2,700 euros, which is the current price for the network level protection. Working for a company that's very, very good at DDoS protection, I would say that 184 euros per month, even for a single IP, is a very good price. I do think that this is, especially, again, given the chaos we have in Sweden currently, something that I do think SMBs will invest in. Absolutely. Would it be possible for us to um, find someone to talk to and explain what what does it really mean to do DDoS protection? Because mm-hmm. I'm, I'm pretty sure that most people look at DDoS protection as, well, it's a tick in a box. And how the heck can you charge me 184 euros for yeah. it? Yeah. But there is so much more yeah. to those small words. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, I think that would be really relevant. I think it is one of the areas that is a little undervalued because it, Mm -hmm. especially I think on the Azure side, it is so easy to put on Mm. in a way that it also makes it feel like less, less of a service because you don't see it on the surface so much. Then in other areas of networking capabilities in Azure, there is a public preview of private application gateway capabilities. Have you worked with application gateway before? I Silence. did, uh, but that was quite some time ago. 
Yeah. So there's been two iterations of application gateway in the past. So version one, and now we are at version two. And one of the kind of the core, um, not capabilities, but features of application gateway has been that you need a public endpoint that has enabled a lot of the management capabilities and things like that that are associated with application gateway. So you did not actually have the possibility to create an application gateway that only has a private IP address. But that might be the scenario for some cases if you are not using the application gateway to protect a public-facing application, but instead a internal application. Or maybe you have a set of backend microservices that are behind that application gateway, for example. So that would be another scenario that those do not actually need to be uh, facing the internet. So now in application gateway version two, there is the possibility to have just a private IP address configuration to it. So you no longer need to have the public endpoint available. And then that will also bring implications where you have more control over, for example, network security groups and next next hop configurations and things like that, or when you have that application gateway linked to your resources. So there's a lot of implications to it uh, that then come kind of with this change that enable just setting it up in a more protected way from the networking perspective. And then lastly, I have just a small news item, which is related to being able to use user-managed identity in Azure SQL databases. So when we think about the data level services, we often think that, well, do they even need an identity? Because most of the time, those are the services where we write. It's not that service which is writing somewhere else and we need an identity for it. Uh, but for example, for Azure SQL, uh, that can write audit logs, for example, to an Azure storage. So it is that database identity then that we would need to be able to protect the storage account from the identity perspective. So now you're able to create your own user-managed identity uh, for the SQL database. And when it's a user-managed identity, it means that it is an Azure resource that you create. Uh, it's not tied to the resource uh, lifecycle. So it could mean that you could leverage this same identity across different services even if needed. Or if you need to replace something, you can keep the identity and everything can stay in place uh, from the identity and access perspective. Which, especially if you're granting the access to an Azure storage account, well, sometimes the access controls take a little time to propagate. So in that specific scenario, it could be very helpful. And and I do think that like what you're saying now that you can have a actual doing air quotes user identity tied to a service is something that will really make a difference from a security and, and auditing and like monitoring point of view because it's oh. now it's very hard to hide behind what you do and you can really limit what that identity is able to do and you can really separate duties uh, in an, an interesting way. Uh, and it's, exactly. it's something that I do hope that we'll see more organizations really using. Uh, but I think it's a 
question of cloud and identity maturity as well, because mm-hmm. it might not be the first thing you actually configure and, and start because AD is a mess. Azure AD can be an <laughs> equally big mess. And then you introduce new things that yeah. are actually completely new, uh, <laughs> but super useful. And you get rid of these horrific implementations of high-privileged accounts that are regular users that can be used for whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'm happy to, to hear this uh, and, and see that it's really making a difference, even within the, the data space. Yeah, and we are definitely seeing that we have these managed identity options kind of flushing out to the different services in mm. a broader scale. So it's just kind of like filling in the blanks, I think, at this moment that we already have a lot of this in many services, but not all yet. Mm-hmm. So it is coming to those where it is still missing. Mm. We'll be back next week with the focus segment, and that's going to be uh, Simon's show. So until then, have a great one and we'll see you in a week. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Need in Tech. Need in Tech is a bi-weekly technology podcast hosted by Alexander Arvidsson, Simon Binder and Heini Hilmaninen. If you have any feedback, questions or would like to be part of an episode, please reach out to us on social media or via email at podcast at ndptech.com.